0: Welcome to the Integral Health Resources Podcast. This is Bob. And this week, uh, I'm just going to riff a little bit on the idea of evidence based treatment. Now, I'm a mental health counselor by trade. And one of the things that's uh, really frustrated me in my uh, clinical training and my graduate school program is that uh, I feel that. My fellow classmates, a lot of times even faculty members, the counseling community in general, is woefully unreflective when it comes to this notion of evidence-based treatment. And what I see is that uh, someone looks at a textbook It could be a textbook on some, you know, psychotherapeutic treatment, like, say, cognitive behavioral therapy. And they see in the textbook that there is, you know, a bunch of names and dates uh, behind every other sentence in this textbook chapter. And these, you know, at the end of the chapter, at the back of the book, these correspond to uh, research studies. And therefore, you know, it's it's backed by research. Um and yet uh the amount of um people that actually take the time to look at any of these studies, evaluate them, decide whether they're biased or, or, or they're strong or weak findings is exceedingly low. In fact I took one class uh it was on addictions and It was a summer class, and I had lots of of time. I wasn't doing much else, and so I decided I was going to look at every study that was listed in in the chapter that didn't ring true. I was actually going to go and, you know, Google it and then find out sort of for myself if, you know, if the uh, conclusion that the textbook author had come to that was supported by this research study really was valid or not valid. And I was really shocked at the results of this little experiment. I mean, I would be reading a chapter and there would be you know an assertion made about well, let's just say the scientific validity of the twelve steps or something like that and there would be a little name you know Johnson comma two thousand twelve sort of backing up the assertion that uh you know the 12 steps were an evidence-based treatment and then i would google that study and and take a look at it and um and i would read the citation and that particular citation at least in my opinion didn't support the conclusion at all <laughs> that the textbook author was trying to make or the study was you know just was full of holes and and didn't make any sense to me um so You know, the overall frustration is that uh, it seems like the professor who chooses the textbook has already, you know, sort of, you know, done the deed as far as, uh, you know, filtering out um, a variety of perspectives and giving you the one that's uh, the, the status quo for the particular program you're in, and then most students just they don't have time to investigate all these studies, or they don't, really, they don't really know a lot about research, and they just accept whatever the conclusions the, uh, the textbook author has made, and oftentimes I find the professors doing the same thing, and when you ask questions in class you find out that uh, the professor really hasn't looked at the study either, so. Anyway, all that's been frustrating me for years really, I mean, when I um, worked at a psychiatric hospital in Kentucky we you know like any facility you're gonna have economic pressures you're gonna have insurance companies that you know they're not going to pay for anything unless it's quote unquote evidence-based now of course this makes sense I mean if you're doling out the money and uh, you know you want things you want treatments to be used that work and you have to have some standard to decide whether or not something works and so you Put a certain amount of faith into the scientific endeavor and the peer review process. And and that makes sense to me in theory. I mean, of course, you want to have evidence-based practices as opposed to the alternative, which is just anybody doing whatever they feel like doing, uh, whether or not it works or makes any sense. So I, I'm sympathetic to, to that perspective. But in practice, it's just it's very tricky. For instance, we used these workbooks in the on um, the uh, adolescent recovery center unit that I worked. We we're basically a chemical dependency unit, and as you can sort of tell just by that terminology, chemical dependency, we looked at uh, addiction and our in our patients who were adolescents, and we tried to uh, essentially, in the span of twenty eight days, uh, give them a variety of of treatment opportunities so that they could uh, hopefully leave the facility and be able to better deal with their addiction or their drug problems. And um, there's a variety of staff members from social workers to counselors to psychiatrists, and and everybody seemed to have their own sense of what an evidence-based approach was. There was a general philosophy that, of course, you know, if you work for someone, you sort of have to follow. But we had a series of workbooks that we had the patients do to help them work through various um, aspects of their drug problems. Uh, they would give them a chance to reflect on psychological processes, learn about the physiological effects of drugs, and reflect on environmental factors and so forth. And I really liked the quality of these particular workbooks. Now, of course, there was no scientific studies saying you know that these particular workbooks were any better or worse than any other and so uh, in the when there's no relevant science I guess you can sort of pick whatever resources you want to pick based on the expertise of your staff members but sure enough somebody came in I guess and was trying to market their set of workbooks that um, they say was evidence-based because there was some research showing that this particular way of uh, working through addiction problems is you know is effective compared to others or uh, you know I forgot what the exact research that was backing it up was but essentially the author the originator of these books himself Uh, conducted a series of research studies showing that you know his product was was valid so I mean there's tremendous bias there of course but you know it was a it was a study and this person had an academic appointment somewhere and so there was one research study showing that that these particular workbooks were valid and the ones we were using had zero studies showing that those were valid and so the argument was made that we need to use these these new ones because they're evidence-based and uh, that's exactly what the administration did we threw out all the the other workbooks which I thought were awesome and then we immediately started using uh, these quote-unquote evidence-based workbooks which in my opinion weren't as good but then again you know I didn't have the quote-unquote science to back it up I mean this frustrates me because you know a single study done by someone with a vested interest in the outcome you know to me does not trump the clinical expertise of staff members and other you know other forms of uh, quote-unquote evidence or ways of assessing validity and it's such a political game I mean it's unbelievable how other evidence-based treatments are are marketed all the time in psychology and counseling there is uh, an evidence-based treatment list that everybody wants to get on because if you can get on that list you can market yourself as an evidence-based treatment and you can um, you know get insurance company boards to whatever give you the stamp of approval and, and pay for your treatment and then you can you know market yourself as an evidence-based treatment and do training programs where you're charging people tons of money to train under your little system and then you have all kinds of books and materials that you can charge lots of money for and it's just this unbelievable racket where uh, always the, the people that are, have vested interests in a certain product or a certain perspective are the ones doing the research. And it's this, this race to see who can uh, stack up the, uh, the most research studies and get on that list and become sort of the preferred method. And obviously, this is an incredibly troubling, incredibly biased um, uh, system that we have. And it's almost sort of becoming a joke now. I mean, I'm sure most listeners are familiar with the concept of confirmation bias, and we all we all have this. Um, you know, we just uh, tend to filter things, information, in such a way that you know, are the things that we already believe are validated, and what we don't um, we don't believe, we find we poke holes in those, you know, in those theories and in that evidence and uh, especially when there's money on the line you see these uh, these bias these biases play out so for instance those in my program who are fans of cognitive behavioral therapy you know will point to the evidence and the studies that are backing up that particular method and even they might may go as far as to say hey if you don't do cognitive behavioral therapy you're you're not an ethical counselor because the evidence shows that this is the best one, and if so, therefore, if you're not doing it, you know, you're not giving your clients the uh, evidence based treatment that they deserve. But again, that argument rests on the notion that the science that's being done is actually objective and solid and unbiased, which of course just isn't true. And then someone like me, who may be interested or resonate with say you know mindfulness-based approaches for instance. I'm into mindfulness, I like doing it myself, I've used it in my, in my counseling practice and I've seen that it you know, can be helpful and now there's a ton of research coming out in the last few years sort of validating that point of view and so now you can confidently use mindfulness-based practices as, um, and say you're doing evidence-based stuff. But, of course, you know, I realize that there's confirmation bias there too that I'm simply gonna be uh prone to just accepting those mindfulness studies because it's something that I already dig so sorry i had to I had to cut the microphone off there. It's been waking out. I live in the southwest and we have these evaporative coolers and it's blowing down on my uh on my microphone and causing mayhem here but anyway so <clears throat> Uh, mindfulness-based approaches have finally, you know, gotten some research backing. And then, if you're someone like me who's sympathetic to that framework, you know, it's tempting just to say, "Okay, you know, this is evidence-based," and not not look at those studies. And when I had to look at at least the mindfulness um, approach-based interventions that have been used for school-aged kids, I had to admit most of the studies are terrible, and that the the enthusiasm is way, way beyond where the research is. And you have the same situation you have with any other um, sort of therapeutic uh, modality where you have all these folks that are interested in mindfulness or they're mindfulness practitioners. They really, really believe that mindfulness is going to be helpful in a school setting. And they're the ones doing the studies. And of course, they're going to find support for that thing that they you know that they really love. And so you know and again but most of the studies of course are really really weak or poorly designed anyway but they get picked up in the media and then you know you get this sort of wave of public opinion <clears throat> going that okay this is a this is a scientifically backed thing. And I mean so but if you if you're someone like me who's um you know, you're actually going to see a client and you need to do something with them that day. How do you make sense of all this? I mean, am I going to not use a mindfulness-based approach because I don't think the science is great? Am I going to base my decision on what I do solely on uh, the scientific method and and the results of of peer-reviewed, you know, inquiry? And the answer to that for me is no. Um, I don't think, this that that science uh, that you know in general and um, you know clinical trials in particular which is the gold standard sort of methodology that's going to get you on these evidence-based treatment lists is really well suited to study a lot of uh, these counseling methodologies I mean the fact of the matter is when you're doing these studies if you want to get the quote-unquote strong research results, you've got to do things like uh, purify your sample. You want to have only clients in the study that have, you know, one diagnosis. You know, they have to have just a clean diagnosis of depression without any other weird, complicated stuff like substance abuse. And and then when you're doing your treatment, you know, you have to have a very manualized protocol that any robot could just basically do because you're doing a scientific research study so the actual treatment has to be you know the same treatment you know you could do any any counselor would be doing the exact same thing so you break it down and then write it out from this manual you have this perfectly clean uh... depressed client there was no other complicating factors and then you play around with statistics or whatever else you're going to do, and you get, you know, some sort of positive result. And, of course, you know, the researcher has some sort of investment professionally in cognitive behavioral therapy. And lo and behold. So my microphone uh, failed me again, and I'm, I've lost the train of thought once more, but I need to plow onward here. So generally my, my point is that, in, in my opinion, science, at least as it's practiced uh, right now, where it's mixed with capitalism, essentially, and it's, you know, all these people with vested interests and in certain outcomes are pulling all the strings, is not really something that you can rely on fully. I mean, you're going to take it into account when you're, you know, a practitioner, but you can't assume that, you know, the results of these studies are valid. And you can't, I, I don't think you can really direct what you're going to do based on, you know, science that's flawed to the the degree that it really is. And even people, you know, at least my peers that I see that disagree with me and, you know, they do whatever it is is that's the quote-unquote evidence-based thing, really don't do the evidence-based thing. Because, again, they have no understanding of uh, of research whatsoever. So they'll they'll do quote-unquote cognitive behavioral therapy because you know it's 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 an evidence-based thing and the research backs it in their mind so what they do is they're talking to their clients and they do a few little reframes and um, you know they basically work with the clients thoughts and try to you know get the client to you know change their thinking so that their feelings change and they call that cognitive behavioral therapy but they're not actually doing what the cognitive behavioral manual says to do. the The manual or that the studies were based on. They're not doing cognitive behavioral therapy in that way. They're just doing it in whatever way they feel like doing it. So they're really not practicing in an evidence based way. If they really, if they're really going to say I'm doing this because the studies back it up, then they should do the cognitive behavioral therapy version that was used in the studies, which is this very st- structured, manualized thing that uh, not many um, counselors would want to do. And it's the same with mindfulness-based approaches. You know, the the, the research out there that is halfway decent that shows um, the positive effects of mindfulness-based interventions usually relies on um, mindfulness-based stress reduction protocols that are very intense and involve, you know, eight-week programs and 45 minute meditation sessions you know seven days a week they're very intensive and with all that attention and a very structured very intense practice environment you get a certain effect and then you hear on media that you know mindfulness-based approaches are now scientific and so then you have a client and you, you just have them follow their breath for two seconds or tell them to be mindful of their feelings, and, and you say, well, I'm, what I'm doing here is si- is scientific and evidence-based because mindfulness is an evidence-based practice. and that. But what you're doing, maybe it's your version of a mindfulness-based intervention, but it's not uh, what was in the study. So if you're really going to stick with the science and you need to put your client through some super-intensive eight-week program of mindfulness-based stress reduction... And of course, you're not going to do that. So either way, you know, the whole thing is just, you know, just sort of a game I think everybody plays, and some people just deny that they're playing that game. And so it's frustrating because, you know, as a counselor, obviously I want to help my clients, but I, I don't really feel tethered to this notion that I need to let the quote unquote science and the evidence direct everything that I do. I mean, I'm going to work with my clients in an ethical, reasonable way and take into account everything I've learned, including, you know, reviewing relevant research for all its flaws. And of course, that means you need to learn how to evaluate research if you're going to do that appropriately. And I'm going to take all that stuff into account. I'm also going to take common sense into account, my years of experience, um, my own life, my own personal experiences my experiences working with other clients, things that don't uh, fit into the scientific um, approach. You know, it's still data. It's still relevant to how I'm going to work with clients. And I'm going to take all of that and then, you know, act accordingly. And, you know, to just say, you know, what you have to do is got to be based on the research. is just nuts. There's an old, you know, parable about searching for the key under the lamppost. And it goes something like, you know, the guy notices another guy is staring underneath a lamppost, looking around. And he says, hey, what you looking for? And the guy says, I'm looking for my keys. And uh, the other guy says, what, well, did, did you lose your keys out here? And then the first guy says, no, but uh, this is the only place where the light is. So in other words, maybe he lost his key in his house. Or down in his basement, but since it's dark there, uh, he's never going to find it there. But there's a light outside, so he's going to go look for it outside, even though he knows darn well the key's not there. And, and and for some reason, you know, this strikes me as applicable to, you know, applying a rigid scientific method to psychological constructs in general. I mean, you're just only going to find out so much. There's only certain really good research questions. There's only certain, uh, a certain type of information that, that I think science is going to provide when it comes to uh, psychology and counseling research. And if you just focus on doing very, very high-quality, good studies, asking research questions that are suited to the scientific method, then that's great. I think that's the proper role of science. But what you have is millions and, you know, whatever, gazillions of graduate programs and graduate students. Everybody needs to do a thesis or a dissertation. Everyone's just flooding the information um, market with, with just research studies, the vast majority of which are just terrible and just yield uh, totally useless information. And it just makes people confused and able to sort of manipulate things to suit their own ends. Um, A couple other articles I read this week that I'll I'll post links to that are sort of uh, going on this theme. There was one uh, guy, John Bohannon. He wrote an article, and he entitled it, I fooled millions into thinking chocolate helps weight loss. Here's how. And uh, this guy, Bohannon, he has a science background in molecular biology and he's also a science journalist. And he sort of wanted to make the point that, you know, he's like, if I put out a study that's really done very poorly, and I'm not going to lie about the study when I when I send it out to the media or send it out to journals, I'm just going to do it very poorly so that anyone asking the right questions would know right away that, you know, the conclusions of the study need to be you know, taken with a grain of salt. I'm going to do this and just see see what journals and see what the what the media does with it. And he did it on, you know, chocolate uh, helping with weight loss. So he essentially set the study up very poorly, used, you know, few numbers of people in the sample size so that it really, you know, the results wouldn't mean anything anyway. He had all kinds of different measurements, you know, so he had, you know, the one one group eat a certain diet and, the, and another group eat that diet and throw in a chocolate bar. And then he measured changes in, you know, weight, cholesterol, sodium, blood protein, sleep quality, well-being. And uh, he, he quotes in his article, he says, here's a dirty little science secret. If you measure a large number of things about a small number of people, you're almost guaranteed to get a quote-unquote statistically significant result. And because of this little trick, of course, he, you know, he got his statistically significant result, which turned out to be the weight loss thing, which was perfect for the media to pick up. And then he sent out the study to journals, and a lot of journals accepted it, even though it was really garbage science. The media loved it. What, you know, what chocolate, you can eat chocolate, and that helps you lose weight. And, And, you know, all these media outlets ran with stories of with like semi-pornographic pictures of women and with chocolate all over their mouths or eating a fudgesicle in a sort of salacious way. And all of a sudden, you know, t- local TV news channels are having all these stories about how, you know, chocolate helps you lose weight. And meanwhile, the whole thing was just a joke, basically, to show that, uh, you know, anything can get through. If you... the science uh, journalistic vortex and... You know, there's a series of people that are are doing these sort of joke studies and getting them through peer review journals, and it, it's a little bit scary. There's another uh, article I read this week, um, and I'll post a link to this as as well, by a guy named Richard Smith, who's a believes a former editor for the British Medical Journal, and he's basically saying that the peer review process. For medical science just is a joke. It just absolutely is so flawed. nobody should trust it um, and again, you know he he did a series of experiments where he he purposely you know wrote things up with with errors in it and sent it through this editorial process and very few people caught the errors and he knows I guess as an inside person that these these journals they make tons of money. And they accept, you know, tons of uh, scientific studies because, you know, they're getting paid a lot of money um, by the the person wanting to get published. And you have all these scientists and academicians that want to get published because their careers depend on it and they're, you just have the incentives are completely in the wrong places. And then what you have is then a really awkward situation where you, you know, the gold standard of peer-reviewed journals and um, that's, you know, you want to use when when you're making decisions on um, what medicine you're going to take or what food to eat. I mean, you honestly cannot rely on this information. And so then you get cynical and then that falls right in the hands of, of uh, people that are just uh, skeptics or cynics and say, oh, science can't be trusted, so therefore um, global warming doesn't exist. And, uh, you know, every theory is just as good as any other theory, and then you get all kinds of other insanity. So it's really a, a, a tricky situation. It, it is very difficult. It's hard to admit that, um, you know, the state, the the marriage of science and the media, and you throw in, you know, sort of just capitalism in general, the profit motive, makes for a very, very um, corrupted, flawed unnecessarily flawed uh, brand of science that you honestly cannot trust. Um, And yet it's the only system we have. And so you're in a position where if you're someone who actually has to make decisions and and you're trying to help people out with their health problems, mental or physical, you have to educate yourself and just evaluate these things yourself and then put them in the context of your own clinical experience and just sort of do the best you can and really learn to figure out what uh, what research is is valid, what isn't. And, the you know, the general public, of course, can't be expected to do this and isn't going to do this. But, I mean, the whole thing really is a mess. So whenever you hear, you know, the term evidence-based treatment or evidence-based uh, anything, uh there's a whole can of worms that you're really gonna have to open up and look at. And if you're in a field where, you know, your what you do is dependent on on this, uh be prepared to be challenged and frustrated and um you know, you don't wanna get get so cynical that you just throw in the towel, but um it's not gonna be clear a clear cut thing whatsoever. Um it's not as simple as let's just ask the experts what the what the science says to do, because, uh, you know, you're going to immediately be confronted with confirmation bias and all these other flaws that, that I've mentioned here. So this will be a theme that I probably will bring up in other contexts and other episodes. Again, if you have any questions or comments, you can reach me at bob at com or on Twitter at integral underscore health. And uh, we'll talk to you next week.